Thank you for worshiping with New Grace in Roanoke, Virginia this morning. We are honored that you are tuning in and we believe that God is going to use this service in your life and the lives of many others. We are walking through a very difficult and trying time as a society. As a result of everything happening in our world today, how we gather as a church looks very different. We are all used to gathering together on our church campus, but for now, we will worship together through technology. Though this is a very different format, our desire as a church is still the same. Our desire is to worship Jesus and encourage the believer. As you watch this service today, whether by yourself or with your family, I want to encourage you to participate in this time of worship. As our team leads us, let us sing with passion. As we are led in prayer together, let's cry out to God in desperation. Pastor Sean teaches us from the Word, let's be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as He speaks. Also, be an encouragement to our worship team by participating. Comment that you are watching. Comment on things the Holy Spirit brings to your heart. Or post a picture of you and your family worshiping together on our Facebook page. Again, thank you for joining us today as we worship the Father. We pray you are blessed and encouraged from this service today.
Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Thank you. 
Your generosity is making a difference all over the world. We're able to partner with missionaries globally to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because of your continued financial investment. So even though we're not all gathered together physically on this campus this week, I want to challenge you to continue to honor God with your resources by giving through new grace for the sake of the mission of God. There are multiple ways you can give. You can give online at reachingroanoke.com and clicking the donate button. You can also mail your gift to 1527 Guilford Avenue, Northwest, Roanoke, Virginia, 24017. You can also text your gift using your phone to 540-572-4654. We're going to continue our service now, and one thing we believe as we seek God in prayer, we experience God in power. So right now, Pastor Sean is going to lead us at a time of scripture-fed, spirit-led prayer. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 13, it says, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemy say I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning with a spirit of longing. Lord, we long for this pandemic, for this situation to be over. We long for our life to return to normal. We long to be able to worship once again as a church family. God, in these difficult times, it can seem like you have abandoned us, that you've forgotten about us. But Lord, we know that's not the case. We know that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, we trust in you this morning. We trust in your love for us. We trust for your will in this situation. Lord, we trust that what you are doing is right. We rejoice in you, Lord, because you love us and you are working in this situation for our good and for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to what you are doing. Help us to be submissive to your will and your working in our lives and in our society. Lord, we want to end this quarantine different than we entered it. We want to be closer to you, more in tune with your will and your working and your desires in our life. Lord, help us to pursue you more and help us to be ready to do whatever you ask of us to build your kingdom and to see the lost come to salvation when this is over. Lord, as the psalmist says, let us sing your praises because you have been so good to us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us enough to die in our place and work in our lives. Lord, help us now as we prepare to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak into our hearts and, and change us for your honor and for your glory. Lord, I pray that even now, even through this medium of technology, that, Lord, you would work in the hearts of those who are watching and those who are listening. 
I pray that your spirit will begin to stir our hearts to, to Lord, look at the promise that you have given us and claim it and use it to be stable in our relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord, as I preach to, Lord, say what needs to be said, what should be said. And Lord, help me not to say what I should not say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
was a recent study done by Barna Research Group. They're a group that uh, does surveys throughout evangelical Christianity to kind of get the state of where Christianity is at any point in time, in any place in the world. And they recently did a survey in America. And in this survey, they found that 88% of Americans own a Bible. That's an incredible amount of, of, of Americans who, who own a copy of the Word of God. They also found that 80% of those that owned a Bible believed that Bible to be sacred. Now, sacred means that it is somehow connected to God in, in some special way. So 80% of people who own a Bible believe that that Bible is somehow connected to God. See, in our, our culture today, in our country today, the, the problem isn't the fact that we don't own a Bible. The problem isn't the fact that we don't even know about the Bible. The problem is we don't know what is actually in the Bible. There are a lot of people in our culture and in our society that believe things are in the Bible that are not actually in the Bible. Here are some examples, some you may have heard. You may have heard someone say, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. We've all heard that, but did you know that that's not actually in the Bible? The principle of that statement isn't even in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible tells us that God helps those who can't help themselves. Another thing we, we hear people say is, the Bible says God works in mysterious ways. Uh, you know, it's true that we, we learn from the Bible that God often works in ways that we may not understand at the time, but the Bible never says that God works in mysterious ways. God's not mysterious. God wants us to know Him and wants to know what he's doing, why he's doing. Sometimes our finite minds can't wrap our brains around what God's doing, but God's ways are not mysterious. Here's another one. The Bible says that God will not put more on you than you can bear. I guarantee you, if you ask the Apostle Paul if that was true, he would say no. I guarantee you, if you ask Lazarus if that was true, he would say it's not. I guarantee you, if you ask Lot, Lot, will God ever put more on you than you can bear? Lot will say, yeah, sometimes he does. Sometimes God puts stuff on us that we can't bear. The Bible does say that we won't be tempted above what we can handle. But when we are tempted, God will make a way of escape for us, but it never promises that God won't put more on you than you can bear. In fact, there are going to be a lot of times in your life where you're facing things you can't handle. You're facing things that you don't understand what's going on. 
and you're not sure what God's doing and you can't handle what is happening. There are times where you will be able to handle things, that you will face things that you cannot bear alone. The Bible never promises that God will not put more on you than you can bear, but it does promise that he won't put more on you than he can bear. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about to the Corinthian church. You know the verse Paul goes to the Corinthian church and says, I went to God three times, I had this thorn in my flesh, and I couldn't handle it. I couldn't bear this thorn that God gave me. So I went to God and I said, God, I can't handle this. Would you, would you please take it off of me? And you remember what God said? God said, oh, well, Paul, since you can't bear it, I'll remove it because I'll never put something on you can't bear. No. God said, no, Paul, I won't do it. So Paul goes to him a second time, God, no, seriously, please, I can't handle this. Take it off. I can't bear it. And, and God says, no, Paul, I'm not going to take it off of you. So a third time, Paul goes to God and says, God, I don't think you understand. I, there's a situation I'm facing right now. I can't handle it. I can't bear it. I need it taken off of me. And God again says, no, Paul, I will not take the problem away, but I will give you strength in the problem to bear it. And after that, Paul said, well, in that case, God, I will rejoice when you put more on me than I can bear. Because when you put more on me than I can bear, and I can't do it on my own, and my strength isn't sufficient, through your grace, your strength comes into my life, and your strength does through me what I cannot do for myself. The Bible says that his, his grace is enough for you. Whatever you're facing right now, whatever situation you're going through right now, His grace is there for you and His grace is enough. It is in His grace that allows His power to be perfected in your weaknesses. That is what Paul learned. Here's another one. The Bible says cleanliness is next to godliness. That's, that's nowhere in Scripture. Now look, I agree, people should take baths. People should clean themselves, especially now. You know, we're all learning to wash our hands several times a day where we're being told, don't touch your face. Maybe don't shake and hug hand and hug people, shake hands and hug people. And look, these are things we should, should, should continue to do after the quarantine is over, after life returns back to some semblance of normalcy and you can be around people again. You know what? Still maybe wash your hands. Still maybe don't shake everyone's hand or hug everyone. I'm not saying don't hug your mom or your grandma, but you know, when you, you see that, that friend you just haven't seen in a couple months, don't run up and hug them. You know, maybe just fist bump them or elbow bump them or something. So cleanliness is a vital thing that we should understand. People should bathe. People should brush their teeth. People should have good hygiene. But it never says that cleanliness is next to godliness. As Americans, we, we own Bibles. We cherish our Bibles. We believe our Bibles are sacred and our Bibles are from God. The problem is, as Americans, we don't actually know what the Bible says. We're in a very, very troubling time 
right now in our culture with the coronavirus and everything going on, a lot of people are struggling. Maybe you're struggling financially. Maybe through this situation, you have lost your job. Maybe your job's been cut back and you're not able to work as much as you used to or you're not making as much as you used to or you can't even go to work now and you're, you're applied for unemployment and it's taken a while and your stimulus check hasn't shown up yet and you don't know what's going to happen today and you're, you're, you're troubled by it. Maybe you're troubled relationally. Maybe during this time you've, you've begun to feel very alone. Can't see your friends can't see your family that lives with you. I know I haven't seen my mom since January. I went down in January to fix a door for her. That's the last time I saw her because of the coronavirus hit and can't go see her. I miss my mom. I miss seeing my sister and my brother, some of my brothers. I miss seeing y'all. You know, I miss preaching to a, a auditorium with, with people in it. It's kind of hard to preach in an auditorium where, where no one's at. So maybe you're struggling relationally. Maybe you're struggling physically. Maybe you are sick. Maybe not with a coronavirus, but some other thing that you're struggling with. We are in a very troubling time. And because of our circumstances, a lot of believers are scared. A lot of believers are worried. We're confused. We're frustrated. We're anxious. And the reason is that we simply don't know what the Bible says about God. A couple of weeks ago, before Easter, we, we were in this series, continuing this series, Promises, and I, I gave you a statement. And I said, the more you know about God, the more you can trust God in the uncertain circumstances of life. See, God has, has given us His Word so we can know him. In his word, we, we learn about his character and his power and his provision and his protection. We learn about these through his word. And in his word, he has given us promise after promise after promise that we can claim as children of God. During this time of the, the quarantine where we can't meet together, we've been looking at some of these promises that God has given us so we can get to know him better, so we can become stable in these unstable circumstances of life. And we, we sit, we've looked each week at a promise from God, and we've shown you what a promise from God is. But just so we all remember, I'm going to tell you again what a promise from God is. Because a promise from God is vastly different than a promise from me. It's vastly different than a promise from a politician or from a health professional or for anyone else. A promise from God is a guarantee from God to his people based on his unchanging relationship with them in Christ. As a child of God, I can look to the word of God and see the promises of God 
And I can have confidence that those promises are for me because they're not based on my uh, production. They're not based on my work. They're not based on anything I've done. They are based on my relationship with God as a child of God because I am in Christ. Because I've accepted his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for my sins. Because I have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. I have been reconciled with God. I am redeemed and righteous before the Father, I can claim these promises. So today, we're going to look at another promise from God's Word. And this promise is probably one of the most well-known promises in Scripture. John Piper says about the promise we're going to look at today, he says it is the most loved promise in all of the Bible. So get your Bibles open this morning to Romans chapter number 8. We're going to be looking at one verse of Scripture, verse 28. You all probably know it, or most of you know it, or have heard it. A lot of you can probably quote it. But we're really going to dive deep into what this promise means for us. So Romans chapter 8, verse number 28, one verse of Scripture. The Bible says, And we know that all things work together for good, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That is an incredible promise for the child of God. That is a promise we can run to and cling to when our life is unstable. But one of the The challenging things about this promise is, again, a lot of people believe it means things that it doesn't actually mean. So as we dive into this promise, I want to show you, number one, what it doesn't mean, and then we're going to see what it does mean. So number one, what this promise doesn't say. There are three things that people typically read into this promise and they say this promise says this or means this that doesn't actually say or mean here's the first one this promise doesn't say that God causes all things in this verse God is the subject and the phrase work together is the Greek word synergeo it's where we get our English word synergy It is a verb that means to cause to happen. And this verb here is in the present tense, but it's also in the active voice. Now, the present tense means that it's just happening at the present time. So this verse is is applicable to, to Paul's time, to our time, to any time that we can read it. It is present. It is true right now. In the present time, this verse, this verse is true. And so it is, you're watching this sermon now, it's, it's true right now. Paul is talking about things as they happen in your life. But that's not what I want to focus on. I want to focus on the fact that this word here is in the active voice. Now, the active voice means that the subject of the sentence, God, the subject of the sentence is the one doing the action in the sentence. So what is Paul actually saying here? Paul is saying that God causes all things in our life that happen to work for our good. He's not saying God causes all things to happen. 
Now, that kind of sometimes goes against our understanding of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over all. God controls everything. He, he holds the universe together. So since God is sovereign, since God is all-powerful, since God is all-knowing, then obviously God causes everything to happen. No. He doesn't cause all things to happen. Now, God causes some things to happen, and God allows other things to happen. You know, David, and uh, you think of, uh, of Lot. <clears throat> no, sorry, go back. Forget Lot. Lot's an idiot. Woo-hoo! All right. Look at Job. Job had a terrible situation in his life happen. And one day, he lost all of his possessions, all of his children, and his health. And God allowed that to happen. Some of it God caused to happen. I mean, you read the story, he's talking to Satan, and Satan's saying, oh, Job only loves you because you're good to him. And, and God says, Satan, you can take everything away from Job, and he'll still love me. God didn't say, Satan, I'll take everything away from Job. He says, Satan, you can take everything. Did God cause Job to lose everything? No, he allowed it. His health, he says, well, Satan, you can take away his health, and he'll still praise me, just don't kill him. Did God cause Job to get sick? No, but he allowed it. God doesn't cause all things. He causes some things. He allows other things. So that too many of us, we see this this verse, though, and we, we think of the sovereignty of God, and we believe that not only does God cause all things to work together for our good, but that God also causes all things. And that can, can cause us to shift our mentality to blaming God. You know, Job didn't do that. In his story, he said, in all this, he never sinned or charged God falsely. What does that mean? He never looked at God and said, God, you did this to me. But when we think God causes all things, we can look at our current situation and say, God, you're doing this. Now, he may be but he may just be allowing it. God doesn't cause all things to happen. And we can say, well, God causes happen, but God doesn't cause all things. It doesn't say that everything that happens is good. See, a lot of us can look at this verse and say, well, the Bible says everything that happens is good, and we look at our lives and we have a hard time wrapping our our minds around that verse because what we're going through is not good. Everything in the world is not good. You know, God created the world good. God created the world perfect. But then sin entered the world and the goodness of the world was changed. We rejected his divine design through sin. And so when sin came into the world, it brought brokenness into the world. And so because of that brokenness, there are a lot of things that we face that are not good. Cancer is not good. Unemployment is not good. Heartbreak is not good. 
what we are facing today is not good. The coronavirus is not good. Don't let anyone take this verse and say that what you're facing, what we're going through, has to be good because it's bad. It is a consequence of the broken world that we live in because of our rejection of God's divine design. There are bad things in the world. There are difficult things in the world. There are challenging things in the world. A lot of you are facing, again, some, some challenging times economically. And those things are making your life challenging. They're making your life difficult. Why? Because we live in a broken world. And not everything is good. There's evil in this broken world. Even in this crisis we're facing, there are people all around the world who are trying to, who are trying to cash in on this crisis. And they're taking advantage of people. And they're scamming people. And they're hurting people. And that is evil. They are preying on vulnerability. They are preying on fear. They are preying on weaknesses. This verse doesn't say that everything is good. But there's a third thing this verse doesn't say. This verse doesn't say that everything works out good for everybody. There's a show on TV now uh, that some of you may watch. I know some of you do watch it. I watched it for a while. Uh, watched, you know, maybe first four or five episodes. Just couldn't really get into it. The, the show is called Manifest. Now, this is a sci-fi television drama, and it's, it's rooted in the story of an airline flight that vanished. It didn't crash. It didn't, you know, get hijacked. It just, it just vanished. For five years, the plane was missing. Five years later, the plane shows back up. It lands where it was supposed to land, but five years have gone by. Now, the people on the plane, they haven't experienced that five-year gap. To them, it was just a few minutes. There was some turbulence, and they land. Everything was fine, but they get off the plane, and five years have passed, which means their friends and their relatives and their loved ones have grown five years, have aged five years. Their lives have changed over the five years. Some of them, they left, they took off having parents. When they landed, their parents were gone because they died. Some of them took off having a marriage, and when they landed, they didn't have that marriage anymore because their spouse thought they were dead. And they grieved, and they moved on. The flight number was flight 828. And they, they keep going back to that number, and they keep referencing and quoting Romans 828. There's even a pillow that one of the characters stitched with Romans 828 on it. Here's, here's that pillow. Romans 8.28, all, it says all things work together for good. But you know the problem with that pillow? It doesn't finish the verse. That is not true. All things do not work together for good for everybody. Now, People in the show, they're, they're quoting this verse a lot, and they, they go run back to it many times. And people on the show, even people on the show who are quoting it on the show, they don't believe in God. But they quote it like it's some kind of karma. 
that eventually all things work to good for everybody. But that's not what Romans 8.28 says. Let me show it to you again. Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his promise. See, this promise right here, it is a conditional promise. It goes back to our definition of what a promise from God is. A promise from God is a guarantee from God to his people. The promises that we've been looking at, they're not for everyone. They're for his people. They're for children of God. They are for the redeemed. The phrase to them who are the called according to his purpose it is describing those who are in a love relationship with God. And this is a relationship that God has with those people who have understood that they were born enemies of God, separated from God, condemned to hell, but they accepted Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as payment for their sin. They accepted what Jesus did on the cross and him dying in their place and shedding his blood in their place and going to the grave for three days and rising again to reconcile them with God the Father. They recognized what he did as their only way back to God. It is for those who have been born again into the family of God. This promise is only for those who are children of God. If that's you, that means this promise is for you. It isn't just maybe for you. It isn't just sometimes for you. It's a guarantee. Look how Paul opens the promise again. He says, and we know. He said, he didn't say, and we think, and we hope, and we know sometimes it works out. He says, and we No, Paul knew this promise to be true with absolute certainty. And he could say that based on everything he'd been saying in chapter number 8. All of chapter 8 leads up to this one promise and what he says after this this promise. So before this promise, he is laying the foundation on why we can know that this promise is ours. In the first eight verses... He lays the foundation that there is nothing between you and God after salvation. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, in, in, in the Greek New Testament, Greek word order is very important. That's why if you read a Greek New Testament, it, the words, that they, the order they have is, is different than the way we have it in the English translation. But in the, the Greek translation, word order was vitally important. And the first word in that verse in the Greek translation is the word no. And it is a compound word made up of two different words, one word that means not, and the other that means one. So literally translated, it means not one. When you put it together, it means not even one. So Paul is saying there is not even one condemnation. Now, condemnation is a judicial term. It speaks of a judicial pronouncement of guilt on a person. 
And Paul opens up chapter 8 by saying, because of Jesus, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, because he took our sins and gave us his righteousness, because of Jesus, there is not one single thing that makes me guilty before God. I am not guilty before God. I am declared innocent before God. Look at verse number 15. He builds this case even more. He says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Before salvation, we were in our sin, and a judicial pronouncement before God was guilty. We were guilty before God in our sins. We were condemned before God. We were headed to eternity separated from God. But when we met Christ, when we accepted Jesus as our Savior, all that changed. We are no longer guilty. We are no longer separated from God. We are declared innocent and righteous before God. But Paul goes further. He says our judicial pronouncement isn't just innocent. We have been declared an heir of the family of God. But not just any heir. A joint heir with Jesus himself. That means that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to me. Anything he has a right to, I have a right to. Because I am in him. He says in verses 26 and 27, not only are we pronounced innocent before God, not only are we joint heirs with Jesus, but another thing we have going for us is the Spirit of God stands before God and makes intercession to God on our behalf. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The word intercession there means to plead on behalf of another. Not only am I innocent, not only am I a joint heir with Christ, but the Holy Spirit in me stands before the Father at every moment, pleading on my behalf for everything that is going on in my life. Based on all of that, Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. What he tells us is a fact that is rooted in our position in Christ. So that leads us to the second thing. We saw what this verse doesn't say. Secondly, what does this verse say? Well, first thing it says, it tells us that God is at work. God is at work right now, in this very moment, right in the very middle of whatever you are facing. You can know that God is at work. The Bible says that we know that all things work together. Now remember how it's written in the Greek. 
Someone, it's in the, the active voice. So someone is causing all these things to work together. And that someone is God. God doesn't cause all things, but for his children, he works in all things. He never stops working in your situation. Now that, that shouldn't be a surprise to us because Jesus said the very same thing when he was on earth. In John chapter 5, 5 verse 17, he says, My father worketh here hitherto, and I work. Now, the word hitherto means still. So here's what Jesus is saying. My father is still working, and so am I. That's in the present tense. That means what Jesus is saying is, my father is always working, and so am I. God is always working in our lives. God is always working in the circumstances and the situations that we face. In everything we see and do and endure, God is always working. God never takes a day off. God never sleeps. God never takes a vacation. God's never locked up in quarantine. God is always working. God is working in your life even when you can't see it. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is teaching on a hillside. He's been teaching through the area for a while, and he goes up on a hillside one day, and, and people flock from all over the area. Some have followed him for miles to hear him teach, and so he begins teaching on this hill, and 5,000, Bible says 5,000 men, including their wives and children, are gathered to hear him speak. He's speaking to them. So we're looking at probably 15,000, 20,000 people have gathered on this hill to hear Jesus speak, and Jesus speaks for hours. I don't want to hear y'all complain about how long I preach. Jesus preached for hours. And so he, he's speaking for hours. I know, I'm not Jesus. But he's speaking for hours, and the day starts to grow long. The sun starts to set. The disciples are looking at the people. They're far away from town. They're far away from any village. A lot of these people have traveled for miles and miles and miles, and they have to walk that way home. It's getting late. They're going to have to be fed and they go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, it's, it's been a long day. A lot of these people have to go pretty far. They, they can't stop at McDonald's on the way home. So why don't, you, uh, why don't you send them home so they can get something to eat? Remember what Jesus says? He says, nah, you feed them. 20,000 people. You guys feed them. So they look at the crowd. They look at what they have. They say, uh, yeah, we can't do that, Jesus. We don't have the money or the resources to do it, so just send them home. So you know what Jesus did? He took a little boy's lunch, took five loaves of, of bread, just a couple fish, and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples, and they passed out, and everyone there ate. And there was so much left over, they just took 12 baskets full of food back with them. The disciples did. Jesus was working when they couldn't even See it. God was working in the crowd to get there. He was working in that boy's life that he would bring the lunch. He was working in that situation. The disciples couldn't see it, but God was working. God's at work when you can't even feel it. You know, during this time, some of you, you've allowed your feelings to overwhelm you. 
during this time. Maybe you've begun to think that God's forgotten about you. To think that God isn't working at all or God's taken his eyes off of your circumstances or maybe just doesn't care about what you're feeling. Your feelings and your emotions have begun to overwhelm you, but this verse tells us that God is working when you don't feel it. While Jesus was on earth, he had some best friends. Two women and a man, who brothers and sisters, that they were his best friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Every time he would go through their area, he would stop, he would have a meal with them, he would fellowship with them, he would spend time with them. They were his very best earthly friends. Well, one day he's, he's out uh, ministering not too far away, and Lazarus gets sick. So Mary and Martha, they send word to Lazarus' good friend Jesus. Hey, Lazarus is sick, and if you don't get here, he's going to die. Remember what Jesus did? He tarried. He kept working. He told his disciples, don't worry about it. Well, Lazarus dies. Four days later, Jesus shows up. Mary and Martha are, they're confused. They're, they're frustrated. They're, they're angry at Jesus. They didn't feel like God was working. They didn't feel like God cared. So much so that when Jesus does show up, they run out and they accuse him. Mary runs out and accuses him and says, Jesus, if you'd have showed up when we asked you to show up, this wouldn't have happened. Our brother would still be alive. They didn't feel like God was working. But you know the story. Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, I know you're upset. But when I showed up, the resurrection arrived. He went to the tomb of Lazarus. He had the stone rolled away and he called out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus rose from the dead and came out. But a few hours earlier, they didn't feel like God was working. God is at work when you don't see it. God is at work when you don't feel it. And God is at work when you don't expect it. In Luke chapter 5, Peter's out fishing all night long. Peter was a fisherman. He'd, he'd learned from his father. This was his, his career. If anyone knew how to fish, it was Peter. He knew the waters. He knew how the fish acted. He knew how best to catch them. And he fished all night long and didn't catch a thing. In the morning, Jesus gets on his boat He's teaching some more people, gets away from the shore a little bit, and they get out a little bit. And Peter, I mean, his, he's been fishing all night. He's tired. His crew's tired. They've put up all the nets, and Jesus says, Hey, Peter, why don't you, why don't you throw your net on the other side of the boat? Now, I don't know if you've ever been fishing with someone, and you've been fishing for hours and not caught anything, and they try to tell you how to do it. You're really not up to hearing it, especially if they're not a fisherman. But that's what Jesus did. You Hey, hey, Peter, I know you ain't caught nothing, why don't you... Throw it over the boat and see what happens. And Peter, he says, Jesus, we've been, we've been fishing all night long, and we ain't caught nothing. We've, we haven't even caught a cold out here, Jesus. We've caught nothing, but since you asked us to, we'll do it. He kind of says it sarcastically, like he's going to prove a point. He says, well, since you, since you said, we'll throw the net over. So they throw the net over, and you remember the story? 
They catch so many fish that their nets begin to break and the boat begins to sink. And they're catching fish. They fish it on. That's when you caught fish. You didn't fish during the day because it was hot and the fish were were down deep and they were sleeping and they were unaccessible. So you, you didn't fish during the day. So Peter, he throws a net over. He doesn't expect anything but a wet net. But he catches so many fish, he almost loses his boat. God is working even when you don't expect it. God is at work when you can't see it. He's at work when you can't feel it. And God's at work when you can't expect it. But what else does this verse tell us? This verse also says that God is at work in all things. And we know that all things work together. In the, the Greek, the word all things, the phrase all things is one Greek word. It's the Greek word pas. And it means all things collectively or each individual part. That tells us God is at work in our lives continuously. God is at work in your entire life. There is not an aspect of your life that God hasn't worked in. There's not an aspect of your life that's an accident. There's not one aspect of your life that is outside of his control. Your entire life is by his divine design. David tells us this in Psalms, Psalms chapter 139, verses 1 through 4. He says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. He says, God, you know me. You know when I sleep. You know when I'm up. You know everything about me, God. Thou compass my path and my lying down. That and art acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. He goes, God, you know everything I'm going to say. But then skip down to verse 13. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from you. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in countenance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Before you were you, God was at work around you. God is at work in your entire life. But he's also at work in every individual part of your life. The whole and every individual part. He isn't just working in a few things. He's not just working in the good things or the wonderful things. He is at work in all things. He's at work in the sunshine and the rain. He's at work in the gladness and the sadness. He's at work in the rejoicing and the heartbreak. There is no area that God is not working in your life. John MacArthur said this, he says, all things is utterly comprehensive, having no qualifications or limits. Neither this verse nor its context allows for restrictions or conditions. Say, so what does that mean? That means if you're a child of God, then God is at work and God is at work in all things. Everything that is happening right now, God is is working in it. But the last part of the promise 
is the best part of the promise. So what does this verse say? What does this promise say? It says God's at work. It says God's at work at all things. And thirdly, God is at work in all things for my good. If you are a child of God, if you have accepted his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for your sins, then this is for you. What does it mean? God never sleeps. God never takes off. He is at work in all things that you face, the good things, the bad things, the ugly things. He's at work in all things, but he's working them out for your good. The Greek word for good means best possible outcome. Beneficial or useful. So what does that mean, preacher? What you're facing right now, God is working in it in your life for the best possible outcome for you. I know sometimes we can't see it right now. We're looking at it now and saying, well, this ain't the best thing I could face right now. No, you're not facing the best thing, but God's working in that thing to work it out for the best for you. John MacArthur said this. He says, no matter what our situation, our suffering, our persecution, our sinful failure, our pain, our lack of faith, in those things as well as in all other things, our Heavenly Father will work to produce our ultimate victory and blessing. God is at work in everything I'm facing for my good. Christian, if you're watching this morning, you can claim Romans 8.28. You know what it means? If you know what this means, if you understand it, then this verse can keep you from getting angry at your situation. What's it or get angry about? I know the situation may be bad, but the situation you're in, God's working in it to bring about the absolute best for you. If I truly believe this, I'm, I'm never going to be offended. I'm never going to be insulted. I'm never going to be jealous of someone else. I'm never going to be bitter over what I'm facing. I'm never going to hold a grudge because I'm not happy. I'm never going to be disappointed. I'm never going to be anxious or fearful because I know that God is working and what I'm facing for the absolute best for me. So what am I to do with this promise? A few things and we'll close. Number one, trust God. Surrender what you are facing to Him. Trust that whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, God is working in it for your best. Your trust is rooted in this promise. But not only trust God with it, thank God for it. So how can I thank God for what I'm facing? You can thank God for what you're facing because this promise says He is working in it for the absolute best for you. He is using it for your good. And thirdly, talk to God about it. You can go to God in prayer. You can pray, pray, Father, 
I claim this promise based on what you said in your word. I ask you to work in it for my good. Lord, help me to trust you about it. And Lord, I thank you for what you're doing. As a child of God, you can boldly approach the Father because you are a joint heir with Jesus. You have the right and authority to approach him. Max Licato says this about prayer. He says, God doesn't delay. He never places you on hold or tells you to call again later. God loves the sound of your voice, always. He doesn't hide when you call. He hears your prayers. When you, when you talk to God, you can claim the authority of the promises in his word. And when you do that, I promise God will answer. God is at work in all things of my life for my good. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning for this promise. We thank you that, Lord, we can run to this promise and as your children, we can grab onto this promise and claim it as our own because it is our own. Lord, we, we know that even now, a lot of people now are facing very tough times. And Lord, I pray that as your children, we would trust you. We would trust that what we're facing, though it may not feel good, you're working it out for our good. But not, not just our good. Lord, you're working it out for the best possible outcome for us. Lord, help us to trust you in our circumstances. God, help us to be able to thank you for our circumstances. Be thankful that you allow these things in our lives so that you can work in our lives. And Lord, help us to be able to talk to you about the promises that you have given us. God, thank you for these promises you have given to us as your children. Now, as Christians continue to pray, maybe just pray in your heart that God would help you to trust, help you to, to uh, thank Him for it, help you to talk to Him about the situations you're facing. As Christians begin to pray, I want to talk to those of you who maybe aren't saved. You're watching this morning, you're listening, and you're not a believer. You know for sure that you have not trusted Christ as your Savior. This promise does not apply to you can. God has made a way for you to become his child. The entire story of the Bible is the story of God's incredible love for you and what he did to make a way for you to come back to him. We were all, since the Garden of Eden, we've all been born sinners. The Bible tells us for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us, myself, everyone, every believer you know, every non-believer you know, everyone was born an enemy of God, separated from God, condemned because of their sin. Wages of sin is death. That doesn't just mean we die and, and our body stops beating and our spirit goes off into the nothingness and we just go eternal sleep. That word death is, means eternal separation from God. Revelation, it says that the death is being cast in a lake of fire. And yes, there is a real place called hell with, with fire and torment. But the worst thing about hell is God is not there and God will never be there. And you will be there forever, eternally separated from God. And you're going to be there because you're a sinner. That was my fate. And if you're not saved, that's your fate.
and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't be good enough. You can't be kind enough. You can't work hard enough. You can do nothing on your own. And God knew that. And God loved you so much. He did for you what you couldn't do. He came down in the form of a baby born to a virgin known as Jesus. Lived a perfect life. Jesus, as God in the flesh, never sinned. He completely fulfilled the law of God. He did what no one else could ever do. And then he died for my sins and your sins. When he died on the cross, we just celebrated Easter last week. Of course, that's the crucifixion and the resurrection. But when he died on that cross, when he was crucified, when he was beaten, when he was spit upon, when his beard was ripped out, when he had a crown of thorns put on his head, when he was hung on that cross and his joints came out of socket and they pierced him with the spear and he bled and died, he didn't do that for his sins. He did that for my sins and your sins. The Bible says that as he was on the cross, my sins and your sins and the whole world's sins were placed on him and he took the full wrath of God for all of our sins and he died and he was buried but he didn't stay dead he rose again three days later reconciling us to God the Father showing that his sacrifice had been accepted and proving that he was God in the flesh he did for you what you couldn't do so what do you do all you have to do is accept his gift of salvation it is freely given to all who will receive it and if you receive his gift of salvation you become a child of God you become a joint heir with Jesus you are reconciled to God the Father you have a home in heaven and you can claim this promise if you're listening this morning if you're watching this morning and you've never been saved but you want to be. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. There's no power in the prayer. There's no fairy dust that's going to come. The prayer is just you acknowledging what the Bible says and what you believe. You got to believe it. You got to believe you were a sinner. You got to believe that your sin is going to send you to hell. You got to believe that there's nothing you could have done to get out of that situation. You got to believe that God loved you so much. He came. He lived a perfect life. He died a death in your place and he rose again to pay your sin debt and believe all you got to do is trust in what he did by faith and you can have the eternity in heaven. You can have God as your father. You can be a joint heir with God. You can have this promise apply to you. So I'll lead you in the prayer. You just pray it after me. Pray it audibly pray it quiet silently in your heart just pray the prayer and believe what you're praying heavenly father lord we thank you so much for your word we're so grateful that your word tells us how we can get to heaven your word tells us if we can how we can have our sins forgiven and lord i believe that as your word says i'm a sinner I was born a sinner, and because of my sin, I'm condemned to hell. And Lord, because of my sin, there's nothing I can do about that. But Lord, I also believe as your word says that you loved me so much that you were born of a virgin, you lived a perfect sinless life, 
You died a death on the cross that I should have died. You paid the price for my sins. You were buried and you rose again three days later reconciling me to God the Father. Lord, I believe that. And Lord, by faith, I put my trust in your death, burial, and resurrection as payment for my sins. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for doing for me what I could not do. Thank you, Jesus, for paying my sin debt and allowing me to be adopted into the family of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you're watching and you prayed that prayer, we're so excited for you. We're so happy that, that you trusted Christ and what he did on the cross as payment for your sins. And we want to rejoice with you. We want you to know you are not in this alone. You have just entered into a brand new relationship with God. And it can be confusing at first. It can be hard to understand what to do at first. And so you're not alone. We want to help you. So I'm going to put some information on the screen here. And if you're, you're watching or you're listening and you, you accepted Christ as your Savior, reach out to us. You can call me or text me on my personal cell phone, 540-556-4004. You can email me at my email, my personal email, pastor at reachingroanoke.com. If you reach out, we will contact you, we'll rejoice with you, and we'll help you as you walk through this new journey. Thank you so much for watching with us and worshiping with us today. I know the times we're facing, the things we're facing, they're scary. But we can know for sure that God is working in this situation for our good.